Well, amen. How are you this morning? One of the things that I love about LCM is you didn't come here to hear the same thing that is being shared everywhere. Well, I can promise you what you're about to hear is not something that is shared everywhere. But I want to start in an unusual place. I, I am missing Brother Linton. I am missing Abambola. I'm missing some of my friends. And it's December. This is the time where a fat guy in a red suit leaves something in your uh, stocking if you participate in that kind of idolatry. In my home, sometimes those things show up. How many of you like chocolate? I'm talking about that special kind of darkness, chocolate. How do you like it? Are you sure? Some like milk chocolate. Some are a 60% kind of chocolate. Some are a 70% kind of chocolate. Some are 80, some are 90. It's like looking at the Michael Jackson albums in reverse. Almost everybody says that they love chocolate. But it turns out that the all-time favorite American chocolate bar is Hershey's Milk Chocolate. That candy bar is somewhere around 10% actual Chocolate. Cocoa. Is it a chocolate bar if it is only 10%? Some websites say, no, no, it is, it's, it's a proprietary recipe. It, it could be up to 20. Okay. Is it a chocolate bar if it's 20%? And yet it's America's favorite. That's a telling little parable. Let's go to another one. Written in Luke 16. When you get to Luke 16, say there. there. By the way, today is December 1st. Our message today is called Your Bitter Sweet Life Now. In Luke 16, beginning in verse 19. I would like to tell you the context of Luke 16 as we get started. This is not between a terrible, recognizable, wicked man and a righteous man. This is not a parable between those that are overtly lost and those who are obviously saved. This is a parable told about two Israelites, two believers in the first century, two equivalent church members in our time. We make a serious mistake when we look at the things that Jesus said to the nation of Israel and we assign them to two categories, those that are saved and those that are lost. He was speaking to a people that all of them believed they were saved. In other words, he was speaking to the church world of his day. Luke 16, 19, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple 
and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. Somebody say every day. At his gate. At whose gate? At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked the sores. The rich man had a meal. The dogs had a meal. Lazarus longed to eat. Luxury every day. Milk chocolate every day makes spiritual milk babies. Opportunity is laid at their gate, but they have been deceived into believing they have no needs, and they are therefore blind to the needs of others. The character of Christ is assumed, but not achieved, credited, but never carved into the soul, presumed, but not persevered in. These silky sweet little souls are all unacquainted with suffering. So they are unacquainted with the crowning character of Christ. The time came in verse 22. Somebody say it's time. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. It's interesting whether rich or poor, death comes for us all. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. You see, the rich man was far from the heart of God in this life. So he remained far from the heart of God in the life to come. Lazarus was dependent on the Lord in this life. And so he was standing with the Lord's representative in the life to come. The rich man, he had a sweet life. Of course, he had a bitter eternity. Lazarus had a bittersweet life that transforms into sweetness for an eternity. The character of the rich man is revealed. You can see it in that even in eternity, he still looks at Lazarus a certain way. He sees him as an expendable servant, there only to serve his needs. I'm in agony. I need something. Oh, I know. Let's send one of those lesser people to go get it. These spiritual milk babies are the expendable ones, not the Lazaruses of the world. These expendable milk babies will not be crowned with the character of Christ and will not enter into his eternal kingdom. Look at verse 25. But Abraham replied, Son, Remember that in your lifetime, whose lifetime was it? It's the rich man's. The lifetime belonged to him. He would be held responsible for what he did within his lifetime. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime, 
You've received your good things. Well, Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted. That word for comforted is parakaleo. It literally means to call to the side of. Now Lazarus has been called to the side of Abraham. And you are in agony or torment. Your sweet life now blinds you to your true needs. And worse, it can blind you to the needs of those that are around you. The French Revolution, let them eat cake. Your sweet life now is selfish rather than sacrificial. It prevents the character of Christ being formed in you because it lacks the things that form the character of Christ. It's through many trials, through many difficulties, that we enter the kingdom. Do you know that the church of the first century in Acts 14.22 found those words to be strengthening and to be encouraging? How have we drifted so far from the first century message that when we talk about difficulties, people say, I just want to hear an encouraging message. That was the encouraging message of the first century. How have we so accommodated ourselves to the life of the rich man that we justify comforts that avoid the character of Christ being formed into us? It is through many trials and difficulties that we enter the kingdom because they are necessary to form into you Christ and to place you inside of Him. These bitter trials are a joy because they give us a spiritually sweet crown that is Christ. Agony now. Travailing now. Persevering now is temporarily bitter, but it becomes sweet as Christ is formed in you into eternity. Avoidance now. Your best life now. Every day is Friday now. Popularity now. That kind of avoidance makes agony permanent for eternity. This is an unavoidable truth in the Bible, and it's why popularity is dangerous. It is why pleasure can be dangerous. God has given you things for your enjoyment, but they were never to blind you to the needs of yourself or others. Now, the contrast in this story is extreme. A rich guy and a poor guy that dogs are licking. Jesus does that sometimes. He likes to tell stories about a Pharisee and a tax collector, or a pope and a pimp. He likes to tell stories about a rich man and a widow with a small mite. He tells stories about camels and gnats. Extreme contrast. This could leave you feeling unable to identify with either the rich man or Lazarus. I want to assure you at different places in the message today, you'll realize that you have and are both. But you didn't come here to hear the same message that is preached everywhere else. You came here to hear hear a message that challenges your soul in a way that causes Christ to be formed in you. And if that's not why you came, 
then you will end up walking out the same door you walked in the same way that you walked in. But it won't be our fault. Say, well, look, I'm not the rich man and I'm not Lazarus. Do you realize that whole churches have the rich man's problem and that it's not a modern phenomenon and that you are not exempt from it? Look at Revelation 3, beginning in verse 17. This is also written to a saved, spirit-filled people group. This is not a church age as some dispensationalists teach it. It is actually a church that he is writing to. You must never elevate a spiritual thought above the actual letters of the text. He is writing to a church. He could have written it to us. 317. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. See, this is what riches and wealth do. They insulate you from your knowledge of your own need. I've never met a rich person that I did not see needs in, but they didn't see them in themselves. Why does a man trade in his wives like cars? We have a leader of a nation that has done that his entire life. Why? Because there is a deep, gaping need inside of him that he has no idea how to fill. And all of the power and all of the money in the world won't fix it. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. The perspective of man and the perspective of God are vastly different things. You put on a new pair of shoes and you feel good about it. You wash your car and you feel like it runs better. These are perceptions. God looks at the true condition and he goes way beyond the perception. So I didn't even think to pray, to persevere, to agonize for it. I just called the doctor, you know. Tell me that does not strike home with you. I just called the doctor. Why? Because it was easy. There was no agony in it. There was no seeking the face of God in it. There was no searching for His will. I just Googled it, you know? Or I consulted somebody in the congregation that is spiritually poor and has already gotten the answer and it just came so easily to me, you know? Things that cost you nothing, they're worth nothing. When it costs you something, it builds a lesson into you that you never let go of. No, I didn't search the word for the answer. I googled it. You know, it never occurred to me to give sacrificially in a way that would bless them at my expense. Leave me without. I mean, these are mine and I worked for them, didn't I? How will the sweet character of Christ become your crown without the bitter footsteps of Christ becoming your habit? How often did Jesus do without sleep? And yet I hear, I need more sleep, pastor. Sure you do. How often did Jesus do without the comforts that we enjoy? 
And we are sure that we will have his crown without having his habits. Church, we're going to have to learn to view tears now as harvest then. We need a refining. We need a revolution. We need the character of Christ to forge a crown for us into eternity. Look at his counsel to this church. It's verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me. Hey, rich man, you know what you cannot buy? Character. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. You can hear how easily it would be misunderstood. Gold, gold, I've got plenty of gold. You don't have the kind of gold that the kingdom is built from, though. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Hey, in eternity was the rich man rich? How is it that only two people answered that question? In eternity was the rich man rich? Was the poor man poor? In eternity, who was better situated? You would say that he was blessed. Blessings now or blessings later? Do you need your ice cream before your dinner? Do you need 12 reasons to do something that is difficult before you do it? Will you only do it if you can see the payoff? Husbands, do you have to bribe your wives to get them to do something that you ask them to do? Mamas, do you have to bribe your children to get them to do something you ask them to do? How is character formed like that? Father strong. Follow strong. Finish strong. Yay! Yeah, well, you're going to have to agonize for it. Because none of it comes easy. We need a refining. This problem that we're reading about, it was a church-wide problem for the Laodiceans. It's a really good thing that it's been eradicated in our time though, right? Nobody blind to their condition. Nobody's comforts keeping them from seeing their true need or the need that was laid at their gate. It's funny, there's always been gated communities. It's time for a refining. We need to put on the clothes of Christ. We need to be able to see as He sees. Bitter trials for righteousness have eternally sweet results. Don't avoid the agony that achieves the character of Christ as a crown for you. You can be rich now and poor for an eternity, or you can be poor intermittently and crowned everlastingly. That's a choice before us. Why pour intermittently? Because you find out that it passes right through your hands and when He can trust you with it, He always sends more. When you begin to accumulate, you start to descend into something that is blinding. I'd like to talk to you about Matthew 5 for a minute. As you're turning to Matthew 5, 
I want to guard your heart against a couple things so that you can hear what I'm saying. Because remember, you came to hear something different than is being preached everywhere else in the world. You came to hear something that would be transformative in you. So if you walk in and you defend yourself against every accusation that you feel like is leveled against you, how will you change? I am striking with a sword at your heart as mine has been stricken. And the neat thing is, is it is sculpting the spiritual nature of Christ into me. As you read what we call the Beatitudes, let's put away the idea that an offering will alleviate your responsibility to respond holistically to this message. I have stood for more than 17 years and say, I don't care whether you support us or not. You will see an eclipse of ravens flying in our provision if you refuse. I'm not concerned about what you do. That's between you and God. I want so much more than your checkbook. I want to see your entire life devoted to the Lord. I'm not sure that 10% chocolate is actually chocolate. As we read these, Let's put away the idea that corporate sacrifice is a substitute for your daily cultivation of personal sacrifice. See, your personal sacrifice carves the character of Christ into your soul. Just because you're in a fired up church that gives sacrificially and sponsors missions all over the world, it doesn't change your daily devotion to Christ. We need to do away with the idea That what is being preached about or what can be ascended to is some kind of one-time act of valor. Oh, I know, man. See, I'm saving, I'm saving, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hit it strong. One-time act of valor. The Beatitudes we're about to read about are daily disciplines. You might say they are a daily divine devotion. They can't be done one time and check the box like a Boy Scout merit badge. They have to become a part of your daily habit. The character of Christ, it's not a one-time stamp. You can't get it from a guy in an ecumenical hat. It's cultivated by the continuous carving of the circumcision of your heart so that Christ may be revealed in you. Well, I was really moved in the spirit at that service. I was cut to the heart. Good. But I'm talking about today. There is no coast in the kingdom. There is the daily circumcision of your heart, the carving of Christ into your character. And how many of you have gone so far as to be close enough? Let me answer that for you. None. Not one. Not me included. Not not me in 10 years, not me in 100 years. Are you holy enough to be compared with Christ? And he told you, aim for perfection. Do you rest your arm and stop aiming? We're about to read the Beatitudes, but I just looked up and saw a friend. And I have watched... Him struggle through the years through sickness. And today I know that his family is sick. And he is in church. Nobody will ever be able to take that away from him. 
sick and came anyway. Why? That's just not wise. That's just not prudent. The kingdom never is. It's because he valued Christ more than his comfort. He wants to be closer to the Lord more than being closer to a trash can to throw up in. So, well, I I just don't know about that. You keep thinking that way and see whether or not it matches Christ's character. 26 years, uh, a dump truck, a lawsuit, an AK-47, a knife. Nothing has kept me from being in church. I've preached with a garbage can in this pulpit, thrown up and finished the message. You know why? Because he means that much to me. And yet he doesn't mean nearly enough to me yet. No price that we pay could be high enough. Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice how these are juxtaposed. How many of you say, oh yes, poor, poor, I can't wait to be poor. How many of you explain away poor in spirit? Oh, poor in spirit means anything other than poor. Blessed are those who mourn. For they will be comforted. Oh yeah, love me some mourning. Can't wait to mourn. What are we mourning over? Well, grandma died. Wrong. Mourning over your condition now. Not their condition that you can no longer do anything about. Can I tell you a funeral is a wrong time to cry for your dead relative? Should have been crying over their state while they were living. No, no, no. I I just want to be nice to them. I just, I just want to be sweet. That's all I want to do is be sweet. And now they're dead and I'm broken. Well, maybe you should have had a spine while they were living. No, we like our milk chocolate Christianity. About 10% Christianity and 90% sugary sweet. Jesus didn't live like that. But we're sure we can and receive his crown. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Meek, who has ever put on their Facebook profile, I desire to be meek. Meek is to submit your will and your way to the Lord in everything. Meek is always mistaked for weak, but it's not. It's a strength to not be a slave to your own impulses and desires. Six. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Seven, blessed are the merciful. Oh, come on, man. You want mercy, but how many of you want to be in a situation that requires of you to be merciful to someone else? If you're having to be merciful to someone else, what has probably happened? They screwed you over in some kind of way. Agony. Blessed are the pure in heart. There's a reason that's the eighth verse and not the third verse. For they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let me put this for you in a slide so we can have an honest conversation about it. Persecution, difficulties, trials, tribulations. They cause you to recognize your lack spiritually. 
You think if I just had more money, it would fix it. If my body was just healthy, it would fix it. If my circumstances were different, it would just fix it. And you don't realize that it is aimed at showing you something. You have a very great need that you're blind to. You need the kingdom of heaven manifesting in your life. But you don't think about the kingdom of heaven manifesting in your life while you're carrying on your ordinary life. It takes something jarring, something bitter to get to the sweetness of heaven. The rich man had no need. He couldn't see Lazarus' need because he was having his best life now. He had the bumper sticker, life is great, business is terrific, people are wonderful, let's all coexist. Or some such faggotry as that. You don't recognize your poverty of spirit without need. But when you do, you can have the kingdom of heaven. Mourn. What happens with those that mourn? And what are they mourning over? They are mourning over their condition. They are beating their chest and saying, Lord, I am not the man you called me to be. I am in agony now. I don't want to want that. Help me, mighty God. I have great need. He comforts those kind. What's your prayer life look like? When you've been poor spiritually, when you've mourned over your condition, it leads you to say, hey, I'm not just choosing the job I want. I'm not doing that again. I'm not going to date whoever I want. I'm not doing that again. Lord, whatever you've given me is now under your control. I want to be meek. He says to those kind of men, you'll inherit the entire planet. But again, who fights for meek? Once you have decided that you only do what He tells you to do, you begin to hunger for the next word of righteousness. You thirst for it. You say, Lord, I cannot satisfy myself with anything except a word concerning this. You're not distracted. He fills those kind. And He fills them with the very thing that He needs. You know, when this happens, you can't help but want to show people mercy because you're realizing how much mercy He's shown you. This leads to a purity in your heart. It causes you to see God in any and every situation. You see where He wants a rebuke. You see where He wants a reward. You see where somebody needs a hug and when they should be palmed right upside the head. Man, This leads you to doing what he does, making shalom, becoming a peacemaker. But it is a bittersweet process. You cannot get to the last things on the list without going through the first things on the list. Well, I don't feel like being poor in spirit, mourning, being meek, hungering, and thirsting. Well, then you cannot be pure in heart. You cannot see God. You cannot learn to be a peacemaker. You cannot be His Son. They progress into these things. Tell me that the reward is not worth it. The kingdom of heaven, the comfort of God, inheriting rulership over the earth, 
getting filled with righteousness, receiving mercy. But you can't get there any other way than to go through the bitterness of difficulty and poverty of spirit. You can't get there any other way than to mourn over the state of things now. You can't get there any other way other than meekness and submission. If you are not in a place to truly hunger, then we need situations to get us there. All of those things, though, they produce the sweetness of a pure heart so that you can see the Lord. Man, when you've been really hungry and he has fed you, when you've been really broke and he sustained you, when you've been really sick and he healed you, you start to look at every situation of desperation as an opportunity. You start to get excited about it. You don't see somebody as cursed because they're going through difficulty. You see God positioning them for righteousness sake. Do you agonize over the cost of righteousness? Oh, yes, every time we have communion, I agonize over all Jesus went through. Yeah, you're missing me. Do you agonize over what righteousness cost you in your life? How many Gethsemane moments are you having in a week? Lord, I am crushed by the weight of your will. Nevertheless, your will be done. Lord, I am under pressure because of the weight of your will. Nevertheless, Your will be done. Lord, I feel as if I am sweating drops of blood here. Are you pressed in your prayer time because the will of God is so difficult? Or have you bought into the lie that it's all easy? It's heaven in the next life and help in this life. All God wants you is to be fat, happy, prosperous, and successful now. Live in your wealth. See, the life of Jesus was pressed by the very will of God. Man, I start getting worried when we have a week that feels easy. I start wondering where I went wrong. That's not to say that the Lord can't bless you with a week that is less impacting than another week. But how many weeks of those do you want before you are a vacation glutton? If Jesus sweat over the will of God to the point of bleeding, at least his sweat dropped like blood, shouldn't we be in situations that press the will of God into us? How are you going to get there? Look, only pastor said yes. Only pastor. You know why? Pastor's in situations where it is pressing it into him. Pastor and his wife have been in the full court press of Jesus Christ. Pastor Matthew and Cassidy, whole family, in the meat-grinding carnal flesh tearing away kind of pressure of the Garden of Gethsemane. Well, I I just don't know. Pastors are serious all of the time. Well, what did you expect? Us to play poker while in the Garden of Gethsemane? Shouldn't you be in situations where the character of Christ is being pressed into you? Well, I just don't have a peace about that. (laughs) I bet you don't. I just don't feel led, you know. Might be a reason you're not feeling led. Do you get to wear Christ's crown without going to Christ's cross? Do you get to do that? Oh, but I believe it. I I ascend to it. 
I, I, I'm, I'm sure that he did all of those things. Yes, but you are missing the point. He requires it of you. He'll give you his crown despite your poor performance as long as you are going through the same habitual life he's going through. Who has sold us on the lie that you can live nothing like Christ and inherit his eternal crown? Luke 9, 23. Then he said to them all. He said to them all. All, not a special few. By the way, I'm speaking to every one of you. I hope that you both want to punch me in the face and hug my neck in this message. If, I, if not, then I haven't done my job right. Then he said to them all, if anyone, he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. That's not the rich man's gospel. That's not the Laodicean gospel. That's not the prosperity pimps gospel. That's not the gospel that's being preached. He must deny himself. Take up his cross occasionally. Put on his gold cross monthly. He must deny himself and take up his cross when? Daily. And follow me. Daily. What did Jesus do when he took up his cross? What was he doing just before it? He was pressed. He was in agony. It was bitter. But his obedience was sweet. That's supposed to be a daily process for the believer. Well, why don't I feel that? Because you've gotten used to practicing a Christianity that doesn't cost you anything. Oh, no, pastor, it cost me something. On the 1st and the 15th, when I get paid, I send 10% of my income. Keep your chocolate bar. Maybe I should rephrase that. Send your chocolate bar, but add to it your life. Understand what we're saying here. You don't get to buy with a tithe the crown of Christ. It is earned through what you endure. And nothing that you do can earn it. He credits it to you because you endured. So I have endured. I believe. You're still missing it. We should glory in the loss of our lives. Verse 24. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. The rich man saved his life, so he lost it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. Lazarus had no life of his own. In fact, his own body was given over to dogs. But his eternity was given over to Father Abraham's son. We should glory in the loss of our lives. We should glory in the crucifying moments. (laughs) Yeah, right, Pastor. Hey, when is the last time You saw somebody really glory and what they got to experience that was crushing in Christ. I got to tell you, I wasn't glorying in it, but losing a few battles, some of them children in my own life, is a glorious crown I would not let anybody take away because I know what I was tempted to do and what I responded with. I know what the grace of God produced in me because of it. I know what His power caused me to do that I could not have done any other way. 
So I just, I don't go for bitterness, you know. I believe in a bitter, sweet gospel. That in those bitterly difficult moments, you find out who Christ is to you and who you are to Him. And if you avoid them, you never get that. Daily denial is daily devotion. Do you wake up each day thinking about what you can do without so that someone else can be benefited in Christ? Carrying a cross is carving the character of Christ into your soul. You should be endeavoring towards such great actions for Christ that you are pressed like Christ in the garden. Let's get that straight. You should be aiming for such great actions for Christ that the weight of the contemplation of those actions presses you with the will of God. How do we go along and get along? You know, it's December. Oh, it's the month about Christ's birthday. Of course, I'm being facetious. And I'm not going to go into all the ways in which it was Augustus Caesar's birthday. That's been done. Let me just... Let me just theorize with you for a minute that there may be 10% Christ in the month of December. Are you satisfied with that? No. Are you a spiritual milk baby? No. If you want to mature into the kind of bittersweet, 95% full cocoa kind of chocolate, it can't all be sugar. You have to contemplate things that hurt terribly, but are rewarded eternally. It starts with little things, like I woke up late, but I'm going to church anyway. It starts with minuscule things, like I threw up four times on the way there, but I went anyway. And it ends up with giving your actual life for the gospel. But you can't sit in a padded seat living a padded life, neither knowing your true needs nor how to meet the needs of others. So instead you throw some change to the homeless and expect the character of Christ to be formed in you. What has the Lord spoken to you that is so pressing you that you're in agony over it? What are you wrestling with regarding the will of God? I just caught the eye of a brother who God was dealing with him about discipling someone and he thought it's going to be hard and he wrestled with it and then God made it harder by putting him in the house of a pastor where there would be more accountability, more, more, more. And it was hard. And there was always an easier alternative all of the time. Of course, Christ would never be formed in either one of them if they didn't do it. See, this is what's at stake. How do 5,000 people go to church and go to church so faithfully that it's, you know, once or twice in a month and not be changed in 20 years because nothing's required? There is no attempt for the will of God that so presses the person that they recognize the poverty of spirit and mourn over their condition and say, Christ, be formed in me. I need you. I need you now. I want the character of Christ. This will make you rethink what a great man of God is, won't it? A great man of God, an evangelist that is a friend of a philandering president. Great man of God. Great man of God. 
He's a pastor who's popular with Oprah Winfrey. Great man of God, obviously. Great man of God. A teacher that sells books to ply you for prosperity. Great man of God. Great man of God. An artist whose wife is famous for nudity, but love for his ability to achieve the assimilation of the world into the carnal church. Great man of God. These kind of prophets for profit, these poets of promiscuity, they've perverted the path of righteousness. They've defined an easier and a more expedient way that is not going to enter the kingdom any more than the rich man did. And it's because it completely circumvents the character of Christ that is forged only through suffering. But I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about you. How do you define a great man of God? Is popularity an acceptable substitute for the sacrificial character of Christ? Are you being seduced by the spirit of Sodom? Have you become chummy with Gomorrah? Do you know what the commendations of men of God are in the Bible? Oh, well, brother's got a degree on his wall and he speaks like an angel. So did Herod and he was struck dead by an angel. 2 Corinthians 6 outlines... The commendations of Christ. I mean, it's not as cool as, say, rapping about Chick-fil-A or something. Having an opaque reference to Christ or God that costs nothing. That is worthless. That you'll never be persecuted for. It's not as sexy as that. But it's as sacrificial as Christ. Let me give you a list from 2 Corinthians 6. Great endurance. Marker of a man of God. Troubles. Hardships. Distresses, beatings, imprisonments, riots, hard work, sleepless nights, hunger. Let's just talk about the left side of the list for a minute. These come directly from 2 Corinthians 6. What's, what's in, how many of those can you circle from this week in your life? On the left side. Because this is what Paul said was how he commended himself before the Lord. These are proofs. That the character of Christ is in me. If you have to circle them, how many do you get circled? Well, let's move to the middle of the list. Purity. Meaning totally unmixed with the world. Understanding, patience, kindness, Holy Spirit, sincere love, truthful speech, power of God. Weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left. So, Pastor, I got a few of those. Amen. Do you want them all? Are you sure you want them all? Because the price is daily denial. The price is carving the character of Christ in you. Look at the third list. Glory and... No, no, I like glory. You don't get glory from God without dishonor among men. (laughs) Do you know that your pastors are insulted in every possible way that can be insulted? I have a special little following around the country that keeps up with me during difficult times. Bad report and good report. So no, 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 I, I believe in the good news. All I want to do is share the good news. The good news involves overcoming bad reports. Genuine, yet regarded as imposters. 
Known, yet regarded as unknown. You see in the theme here? Dying, and yet we live on. Beaten, yet not killed. How you doing with your agonizing prayer life, your sacrificial walk with Christ, when you're reading the actual commendations listed in the Scripture of a Christian? Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. How is that even possible? Well, it's about like bittersweetness. Poor, yet making many rich. Having nothing, yet possessing everything. These are the Christian commendations. Let's get to what I really want to talk to you about. Let's go to Psalm 126. Am I boring you today? The good news is, if you get angry with me, I won't be here next week. I'll give you time to recover. It's like those few little breaths that you get in labor between contractions. You need to be careful, though. You stack too many of those together and you don't actually have your baby. Psalm 126. When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion. He brought them back. What does that mean happened? They were taken into captivity. But that's kind of bitter. It's kind of difficult. So, hey, man, that, that's, that's not the Lord's will for them. That was just their sin. You really think he doesn't work in both? Do you think only your next righteous action forms the character of Christ in you and not the discipline from your unrighteous action? We were like men who dreamed. Oh, man. Men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter. Our tongues with songs of joy. It's crazy as they're coming back. He's almost fast forwarding to something Joel said about old men's dreams and young men seeing vision. Then it was said among the nations. Who sang it? The Goyim, the nations. The Lord has done great things for them. What causes the nations to say the Lord has done great things? When the people who have experienced bitterness are brought back. I'm not just talking about Israel right now. I'm talking about you. Say, oh, I came to the Lord and it it was beautiful. Really? He hasn't had to bring you back many times? How about this week? Has He had to bring you back to your senses? Has He had to draw you back in? Do you turn your back on what was wrong? See, that that feels bitter. But it is so sweet because it carves the character of Christ into you. The more that you... so Well, let's read it. The Lord has done great things for us. The nation says the Lord have done great things for them. They say, yes, the Lord's done great things for us. We are filled with joy. When are you filled with joy? When you've experienced the bitterness of sin, but repentance has brought you to the beauty of harvest. Verse 4. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Negev means south. This is the desert region in Israel. And when a stream goes through, things start to bloom. They start to spring to life. But that's not its state always. Which makes it precious when it happens. Streams in the Negev. 
I want to show you the books of the Bible quickly. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Bereshit, Shemot, Veikra, Bemidbar, Devarim. Look at their names. They mean beginning. In the beginning, these are the names he called in the desert and gave his word. It is like he is restoring the fortunes like streams in the Negev. His word restores your soul. Did you need that only once? How often are you supposed to be in the word? And it's supposed to bring you back. If you don't get broken over his will, if you're not agonizing going through difficult things, then what does he bring you back from? At best, back to your senses. His word brings us back to the character of Christ. Tribulation, difficulty, hardships, renew the revelation that you need to restore in your own soul. You need to purchase the true prosperity of the Lord. That's eyes that see, ears that hear, clothes that are the clothes and actions of Christ. A faith that is refined like gold. There can't be any refining without any fire. No, 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 I'm on fire for the Lord. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being in the fire for the Lord. If we avoid it, how will you achieve the character of Christ? If you're experiencing, what is it achieving in you? The character of Christ. It's a double-edged sword. This is not a Yusuk message. This is a why we go through what we go through and why it is beautiful and not a burden. Verse 5, those who sow in tears. Sow in what? What does sow mean? Plant. Those that are carrying the word in their tears. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. How do you go about sowing? Poor in spirit. Mourning in the meekness of Christ. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You go about in tears. Tears over your condition and the condition of those around you. Go about in tears because you're pressed by the will of God and you know that you cannot accomplish it without His supernatural help. You go about in tears because you know that you don't have what it takes and He does. You go about in tears because you are pushed to the absolute crown of Christ. Or you can go about with no tears and get none of those things. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. Salty tears. Salty tears sown. They reap sweet songs of joy. Weeping. While sowing seed leads to shouldering sheaves in the harvest. Milk chocolate churchianity is all sugary sweet. There's no salt in it. It's only fit to be thrown out, to be trampled by men. At least that's what Jesus said in Matthew 5. You know, there's a reason that in bars all over the world, olives are served before ouzo. Bitter comes before sweet. It's the same reason that the cross comes before the crown. 
The same reason that tears and seeds are sown before sheaves of harvest are taken in. It's the reason that the waters of Mara must come before the springs of Elim. It's the reason that Hannah's bitterness of soul came before the sweetness of Samuel's birth. It's the reason that in Elijah's day, the land and the water were bitter, but the saltiness of that prophet made them sweet again. It's the reason that Nehemiah's tears of repentance proceeded his completion of the wall. These difficulties cause Christ to be formed in you and for the glory of the sweetness to belong only to Him. See, when you are so broken over what He's asked you to do, so utterly incapable of doing it, and He does it, you know that it was Him that did it. So you are literally wearing His crown, not yours. Man, the only way you get that revelation, it's not by somebody preaching about it, although I'm doing my best, it's when you're in the situation. And you go, hey, I, I was I, I, I was there one time. Yes, it's daily. Daily. Not even weekly. Certainly not monthly. Of course it's not biannual. As much as I believe in a millennial reign, we don't wait till then. This takes us to Ezra 3. I love this church with all of my heart. And I thought about preaching this message by showing you what you have already overcome. But I decided that that would alleviate your personal responsibility and it would be masked in a corporate identity. Because we have overcome a lot, but many of you have not overcome what the corporate body has overcome. Uh, You showed up and you did good for that month and man, it really helped us and we needed you that month because there was nobody else there. The problem is it's the other 11 months. These are daily things in Christ. I thought about telling you that the reason that we are in prosperity right now with our children, with everything else, is because of all that we have endured for Christ. And that would be true. But I was a little worried that it would cause you to go, oh, well, then we're good, right? No, because it's not daily. It's been seasonal. Ezra 3.10 When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, Get out of your mind that that is some kind of just a religious iconography. It is what God was doing on earth. It was a physical representation of His name on earth. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with their trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord. Because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Oh man, is that awesome? What is the foundation of the Lord's house? Had they not sown in tears of repentance during the years of captivity? Had they not travailed in difficulty. Was it not a bittersweet moment to see the work of God rising because they knew all that it had cost to be there? How about verse 12? But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid. While many others Shouted for joy. Who was right and who was wrong? 
You know, the commentaries will tell you maybe some of them were weeping because they were comparing it to Solomon's temple. That's certainly a traditional thought, but I have another explanation. They sowed tears because they knew what it had cost their nation, what it had cost their family, what it had cost them personally to get to the place where they could see the work of God rising. The foundation of any work of God is tears of repentance so that you can have sheaves of harvest with songs of joy. Anything that is an instant success is not a blessing. It's a perversion. Anything that comes without great cost is not worthy for the king. So, well, God didn't make them uh, sin so that they went into Babylonian captivity. Yes, but he prophesied that it would happen at the moment that the nation was born. And he also said he would bring them out and that in the process they would be refined. So I don't know whether these difficulties are because I sinned or because the Lord is leading me into these difficulties. Forgive me, but what difference does it make? Why is a crooked letter? It's the wrong question. Why are you asking that? The only question is, what are these difficulties achieving inside of you? The foundation of any work is tears of repentance so that you can participate in the sheaves of harvest with songs of joy. This is foundational to the character of Christ. It, it, it's so foundational that you cannot get to Christ's crown without going through His cross. You cannot get to an accolade without going through agony. You cannot get to the resurrection without going through a crucifixion. You cannot be transformed without travailing and you cannot reap without plowing. And yet you're hearing everywhere that there is an easier, shorter way. Just sign this card. Just send this dollar. Just raise this pinky and you'll have it all. Verse 13. No one could distinguish the sound of shouts of joy from the sounds of weeping. Because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. Hey, the beautiful bitterness of a poor spirit produced the ability to see the sweet shouts of joy in what the Lord was accomplishing. Having seen Solomon's which went up with relative ease and grandeur, torn down, and now having to scratch it out of the earth and taking much longer to do it, there was both tears and joy, and they made a single sound. Weeping and rejoicing were indistinguishable from each other because they were both equally necessary for the work of the Lord and the harvest of righteousness. Is the character of Christ growing in you? How has it grown? Have your tears of repentance become more numerous? Have your years of travailing begun to accumulate? Are you agonizing for the will of God or do you already have everything that that you need? I know. You were simply credited with it. You know, people that claim that rarely possess it. Romans tells us what bitter sweetness is all about and what it's achieving in us. It's the reason that you apprentice and work. It's the reason that you train for an athletic event. It's the reason... That an inheritance gained all at once is not a blessing. Romans 5 and verse 1. 
We are nearing the end of this message. I would like to believe that I'm not stressing your patience out. To be completely honest, some of you absolutely look like you'd rather be anywhere else. And that, that's okay. You'll get the opportunity. But while I have this opportunity, I'm taking aim at you. I'm doing it on purpose. If you're worried your relative will never come back, I'm not sure they're here now. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That peace, by the way, is shalom. Through whom we have gained access by faith into His grace, which of course is power over sin, in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. I wonder why he related those two subjects. Because we know. Somebody say, we know. We know. Everybody say, we know. we know. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. And character, hope. Hope that is produced in that way, it doesn't disappoint us. Because God has poured out His love into our hearts by His Holy Spirit He has given us. Listen, the man justified in faith, who stands in peace, only gets there through grace that is power over sin. It's not something that is merely stated theologically. It is achieved because His power is working inside of you. The grace that is power over sin, it teaches you to persevere. It says, keep going. Don't give up. Keep fighting. I will help you. Keep going. Perseverance in this passage is the Greek word that is 5281, hupomone. It literally means a character that cannot quit. The grace of God will pour His strength into you in a way that says, I can't stop. Because I'm not done yet. Christ is not done yet for me. I'm not going to rest. I'm not going to let up. I'm not going to give up. I'm certainly not going to back up. I have to go. How can you see somebody laying at your gate and be full of hope of money and not do something about it? How many days can you go without being pressed with the will of God in your life? Before you say, hey, this is not hupomone, something's wrong. I'm being distracted. Lord, what do you want from me today? Have you become comfortable being his on Wednesday and Saturday? I tell you what, give your spouse to somebody else five days a week and see how you feel about it. Say, no, no, my heart's with him all of the time. Forgive me, I don't care where your heart is. Shechem's heart was drawn to Dina right before he raped her. Your heart means nothing. Get over that. Where are your feet? Where are your actions? See, your heart means something when it produces something in your feet. Tell me that your heart's a different place than your hands and feet, and I'll tell you the Bible says your heart is deceitful and beyond cure. So no, 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 I know my heart. You don't know yourself by a long shot. That's why you have to look at the Word. Perseverance is character that won't quit. In other words, hupomone is a great descriptor of what Christ is. When you persevere in suffering, something happens. Christ helps you through it, and that gives you hope. 
It builds his character in you and it gives you hope. And you know why you start to have hope? Because the next time you face difficulty, you can look backwards and go, hey, I only grew through the last one. I only got to be more like Christ through the last one. The last time this happened, I took a giant step forward. So I can count this trial joy. Now, when you're moaning and biting your fingernails and whimpering because, my God, I just don't know how we're going to do it. What does that say about the character of Christ in you? If you don't persevere through bitterness, how can you get to the sweet character of Christ formed in you? Colossians 1.27 says that our hope of glory is Christ formed in us. Not your doctrinal statement. So what is your hope of glory and how do you get it? It has to be persevering through difficulty. So that the character of Christ can be carved into your soul. So that you actually have hope. If you're a slave to sin then Christ's character is not being formed in you. But if there is a struggle with that sin and grace is causing you to overcome it, then Christ is being literally sculpted into your spirit. Remember, we were talking about the foundation of the temple. Y'all remember that? Only Wade remembers it. Are you guys back over here just bored? No. You guys alive over here? Do you remember we were talking about the foundation of the temple? Amen. Amen. God's work on earth. The temple is very much like the body of Christ now. In fact, the body of Christ is likened unto the temple all over the scripture. It had tears of joy. It was bittersweet. Look what happens when the popular populace wants to pretend to participate in God's work. Watch what happens. They've never persevered, and so they can't participate. This is Ezra 4.1. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, Let us help you build! To which the elders said, Of course, we could use all we can get. Let us help you build. Like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him. Had they really been sacrificing for it? No, No, not at all. They had assimilated with the Assyrians. They were social with Sodom. They knew nothing of Hupamone or the character of Christ. They were getting along and going along in the world. They claimed to sacrifice for it, but nowhere in their actions did that show up. Verse 3. But Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building the temple. We alone will build it for the Lord. See, only those that have sown in tears can take part in the harvest. The proof that the peoples never participated in the character of Christ, it's their reaction to what Zerubbabel says. Look at verse 4. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. You know how many people have come in here, loved everything about us until something was required of them, and then they have done everything within their power to tear down this work and pull you out of it. See, that says so much about the lack of character. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They hired pastors, counselors, 
to work against them and frustrate their plans. You know the irony in all of that opposition though? The irony is in that that bitterness of opposition and discouragement and frustration, it only fueled the formation and the forging of the persevering character of Christ. Sometimes you need a little difficulty. It shows you where you're weak. It shows you where you need the Lord. It causes tears of repentance so that you can have the joy of the harvest. If you're never stressed beyond your ability, where do you find out where his begins and yours ends? Now let me say it like I mean it. You have to be stressed beyond your ability daily to walk with him daily. That's what self-denial and crucifixion daily is. Tell me we don't have some work to go. For daily. Oh no man, I'm getting it monthly. Lots of things happen once a month that don't bring life. Joel 2, 23. Be glad, O people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for He has given you autumn rains and righteousness. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn rains as before. The threshing floor will be filled with grain. The vats overflow with new wine and oil. Doesn't that sound like a blessing? Andrew, does that sound like a blessing? Brenton, does it sound like a blessing? Then why does verse 25 say, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten? Well, it is a blessing, but how did they get to the place of harvest? You know how they got to the place of harvest. They had to go through bitterness to get to sweetness. And that made the sweetness all that much more sweet. Look at verse 26. You have plenty to eat until you are full. And you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked Wonders for you. Going through trial and into harvest shows God's working among you. That's why Psalm 126 said the nations will say He's done great things for you. And your response will be, yes, the Lord has done great things for me. Not a one-time action. Many, many times. You know the beautiful part of this process? is that the power of God is revealed in you and around you. Going through difficulty... Going through the, the Garden of Gethsemane shows God's power in the resurrection and the Garden of the Resurrection. Your weakness, your difficulties, your poverty of spirit, they allow the sweetness of the Spirit to shine through you. And He's the one that gets to maintain and keep the glory. Look what follows this cycle in Joel. You may never have connected it before. There's locusts and bitterness. Then there's harvest and empowerment. What's verse 28 say? And afterward, after you have been through enough bitter, sweet times to form character in you, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will. We are like men who dreamed dreams. A stream is coming in the desert, restoring the Negev. See, this process allows hope to grow in you. You can see what has been accomplished and what he is yet to accomplish, but you have hope for it because you have persevered and his character is being established in you. Perseverance through bitter circumstance gives you dreams and hope that is realized in the character and the glory of God. 
The process was the same for Jesus. John 16, 20, I tell you the truth. You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy. And that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief. But I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. See, agony comes before the crowning of the baby. Bitter trials before the sweetness of the crowning character that gives hope. Bitter labor before the crowning of a continuing salvation. Your bittersweet life now ensures joy forever that cannot be taken away because it is not based on the circumstances of the world, but on the character of Christ formed in you. Have you ever read Revelation 11? We're at one hour and 15 minutes, so I am at a close. We have two witnesses, maybe the two greatest witnesses ever. Man, everybody would want to be these two witnesses because they are killing it. Plagues, fire, at will. Aha! I'm succeeding! Of course, verse 7 Now when they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack, overpower, and kill them. Would you say that's a little bitter? Verse 10, the inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them. That doesn't feel good. And they'll celebrate. You know, the spiritually celibate, they always celebrate the difficulties of the righteous. It makes them feel better about their do-nothing, produce-nothing philosophy. The bitterness of difficulties... It doesn't just form Christ in you. It reveals him to others. They will either love him or hate them based on what they see in you. Look at verse 11 of Revelation 11. After the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. That's Joel's spirit coming. That is Psalm 126 stream in the desert. That is what comes after trial. Breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those that saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and... You know, ironically, this is one of the only times in the book of Revelation that you can see anything that approximates repentance. Because they completed the entire cycle of a testimony. Victory. What seems like terrible, difficult, bitter failure. The sweetness of the Lord resurrecting you in ways that you could have never done yourself. And they saw it. And this is the closest thing that we see to actual repentance in the book of Revelation. It's because of the bitter, sweet testimony of two witnesses. What does your testimony look like? Well, I got saved. Good for you. What have you been attempting for righteousness? What have you been agonizing over because of what you want to accomplish for Christ? said, listen, I, 
I tithe, I attend church, I support missions. Yeah, I expect all of that of you. And I'm proud of you for doing it. Are you agonizing daily over what you can accomplish for Christ? Is it bigger than you so that you feel like you're being pressed? And it's a bitterness because it hurts that you're being pressed, but it's a sweetness because he's being formed in you and you know that he's going to do it anyway? Did you think it was a... Come on, ladies, somebody help me. Is it easy to give birth to something? The hope of glory is Christ formed in you. Help me, men. Do you think that is easy? Anybody watch their wife give birth and think, I am, thank you, God, I was not born a woman? Well, you have to have the king of Israel formed in you. You think that it won't cause pain? That it won't stress you? Our last two scriptures are good ones. The nation that the king of Israel formed on the eve of the conquest of the promised land. Think through that. On the eve of the conquest of the promised land was told that they would go through bitter failure. No, 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 no. God told Joshua you're going to get it all. Now read Deuteronomy 30. He says, when all these curses come upon you. They were told about the inevitability of their failure. That's incredible. Hey, guys, before you go in and you beat all these guys and, and, and he'll be with you wherever you go, you're also going to be bitterly cursed because I've seen you and you're not going to walk rightly with me. Good thing that's not a problem today. Good thing that's been eradicated like the Laodicean problem earlier. I want to pick up right after all of those curses. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 3. Then the Lord your God will restore. Well, why would you need to be restored? Because it's been destroyed in bitterness. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you, say it, again. Tell me that we're talking about a one-time salvation. When the Lord saved you, He knew you would not walk rightly with Him. He knew that it would be a long, bittersweet process forming the character of Christ in you. But He brings you back to Him again. And how does He do it? He uses the bitterness of difficulty to cause poverty in your spirit so that you hunger for Him. Man, if you got it right all of the time, you would be the most arrogant thing in the world. Some of you are despite your failure. Gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. Even if you have been banished to the most distant lands under the heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you back to the land that belonged to your fathers. And you will take possession of it. See, He's not just bringing you back. He's bringing you back to make progress forward. He will make you more prosperous. Say more. more. And numerous than your fathers. When, it, when do you become more prosperous? After the bitterness of difficulty where you realize your utter lack. Do you know why? Those that hunger and thirst for righteousness are the ones that are filled. More prosperous. And numerous than your fathers. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts. And the hearts of your descendants. So that you may love him with all of your heart and soul and live. 
these difficulties serve to circumcise your heart. If you avoid them, then you will have a big, fat, fleshy pig heart. Which claims, God knows my heart. Even though my feet or my little piglet hooves are not doing what the Lord said, He knows my heart. Got a curly tail. An even more twisted spirit, but I say all the right things. I oink when the preacher asks me to oink. The Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies who hate you and persecute you. You will, what's it say? Again obey. You mean you have to go through a process of obedience and then crushing failure for Christ to be formed in you? Yes, He will resurrect His character in you every time if you are just willing to go through the agony of contemplating His will. Or you can continue living in comfort, never noticing your need or the needs of those around you. Nobody's crushed in a life like that. You will again obey. Look at verse 9. Then the Lord your God will make you most prosperous. Where? In all the works of your hands and in the fruit of your womb. Why are we having all of the children that we're having? Man, it's a bittersweet process, isn't it? Some of us lost one. Some of us lost two. Some of us lost more than five to get the ones that we have now. Doesn't that make it an even bigger and more precious miracle? That's how the work of God moves forward. That's how it always moves forward. Somebody who pops out kids easily does not have the same appreciation for it for those that have struggled for it. Now they will. As soon as the kid gets to be a teenager, they'll have the same appreciation for it. The Lord will again delight in you and make you prosperous. Listen, difficulties were designed to bring you back to dependency on the Lord. Travailing leads to transforming. You have to struggle. You have to willingly struggle. You have to sign up for the struggle. You have to fight for the chance to struggle. In the end, you possess more than you lost. But it's all done through Christ and it's His crown. This is the birthing process of Christ in you. Now, I promised you one last scripture, so we're going to put it on the screen in its interlinear form as a picture. 1 Timothy 6.12. Matthew, you can make your way up here. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Don't get distracted by people walking up here. You need this. What is bittersweet? Fight the good fight. I'm sure you can see it on the screen. The word fight. Agonizo. I don't know. Looks like agony to me. Agona. Looks like agony to me. How is it that you stand in faith? You agonize the good agony. You have to be pressed by the will of God. You have to struggle with your own lack. You have to struggle with your need of heavenly resources just to accomplish the task. You have to go through bitterness to get to the sweetness or you're a milk chocolate baby. 
He only causes agony so that he can birth something in you. So I don't know why I'm being tortured. Sure you do. Christ is coming out of you. I don't know why I'm in labor. Sure you do. It's to produce a son of God. So well, I just don't, I don't know if I want all of that. Go silicone your lips, buy a BMW, get a career and produce nothing for God. Oh, I was talking to you, man. We are the bride of Christ. We have to produce Christ. Christ has to be produced in each one of us, not just us corporately. Oh, friends, agonize the good agony. That is what actual faith is. You know what faith is not? Well, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe that He was raised on the third day. The demons in hell believe that it doesn't do a damn thing for them. To agonize over what it means that Christ is Lord to you. To wrestle for His nature to be formed in you. To need heaven to credit you with what you are attempting to walk in. Oh, that is a saving kind of pistos. Faith. If you are in no struggle, you are in no kingdom. If you are not agonizing for the will of God, you're not in the will of God. If you are going along and getting along, then you're social with Sodom and of the same spirit as the world. So no, I'm not. I'm nice and I'm not doing those bad things. Yeah, but you're not doing the righteous things that God requires. Have you ever considered those innocent who sat and watched Jesus crucified? How will you be innocent while the rest of us are crucified for His will daily and you just go about your business? We reap because we sowed in tears. It's the foundation of everything that we do. I asked Matthew and Wade and Peyton and Jennifer to sing a song from the very early days. I'm talking an apartment, an 800 square foot apartment that we all fled to when we were thrown out of our houses because we knew that we were being persecuted, but we also knew what it would produce. Would you stand to your feet? We're going to contemplate something as they begin to sing this. If this was your garden moment, what would even be on the list? Jesus knew the will of God for his life. And he knew what it was going to cost. And it was painfully difficult. What is on the list for you? Otherwise, you'll just go out of here and throw some money at a charity or something and feel better, but have done nothing. What should you be agonizing about? What is your true need today? When you start to get that right, then you'll know how to evaluate the needs of others.
What should you be crying in repentance over so that there can be an actual harvest of righteousness in your life? Let me tell you, if you embrace that process right, it will produce something. It will produce something brand new in you even though you've been saved for years. It will produce the actual work of God in your life. As they sing, I encourage you to contemplate that. Don't just rush to an altar. This is different than normal. It's okay if you're at an altar. We all the time say, Hey, don't let anybody beat you to the altar. I want you to contemplate why you would be at the altar today. I want you to actually wrestle with what you should be agonizing for. I want you to have the crown of Christ and you can only get there one way by doing the things He designed for you to do. I can't hand them out to you. Pastor can't outline them for you. You can't download them off of the internet. They are a relationship between you and the Lord where He requires it of you. You have to wrestle with it. He'll have to be formed in you. As they sing, listen to the words. When they move to the second song, then consider responding.